Well, I'd like to introduce to you our guest speaker today, Weston Duke. Weston is one of our RUF campus ministers uh, here in the Nashville Presbytery. He is serving at uh, Middle Tennessee State University there in Murfreesboro. Uh, Weston has a lot of Tennessee and RUF roots, so I just want to give you a quick flyover uh, there, if I may. Born and raised in Knoxville, right? Attended UT Knoxville, where he met his wife, Hannah, right? After that, served as an RUF intern at Rhodes College in Memphis, then headed north up to St. Louis for a few years where he attended Covenant Theological Seminary. It's where Will and I also graduated from, so good choice. Um, Then uh, was called to serve as the campus minister at MTSU in 2018, where he has been since, and I cannot believe it's been that long already. I know it's been fast for you as well. Weston is Weston and and Will both. They are well now two two of our six RUF campus ministers within what's referred to as the Nashville Presbytery, PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, divided up into several presbyteries, regional conglomerations, gatherings of of churches. We're part of what's known as the uh, the Nashville Presbytery. Uh, so he is an ordained pastor, just as much as uh, Will and myself are and uh, very active within that presbytery, though I have a committee I could recruit you for. We can talk about that later. No, just kidding. Uh, Wesson, come on up. Thank you, Richard. Well, good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn it to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be continuing the, the series that you all have been in during this season of Advent of looking at Christ's coming as it's told through the gospel writer, Matthew. So we're going to be looking at just the first 12 verses of Matthew 2. Um, I'll give you just a second to turn there. The gospel writer, Matthew, says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we thank you that you have sent the word, Jesus Christ, into the world. 
We pray now that as we meditate upon his coming, that your spirit would warm our hearts to love him and to worship him more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you may be familiar with the YouTube sensations Dude Perfect. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so this is a group of guys who, who started out making videos of incredible trick shots, but they have since expanded into making video content of all kinds. And recently, one of my students was telling me about one of their Christmas videos. And a, a common character in their videos is the rage monster. And this is where one of the guys uh, gets excessively angry about something very small, and he starts smashing things. Well, in this Christmas video, the rage monster appears, and he starts flinging presents, and he elbow drops a Christmas tree, and then he starts throwing stockings into the fire, he smashes a television, and he picks up a stool, and he's about to smash a nativity set when he stops and says, that would be a little bit too far. And then he calmly puts down in the stool, and he adds some commentary. He says, by the way, if you've got a nativity set set up like this, it's not technically biblically correct. The wise men weren't actually there yet. And the rage monster is right. During this time of year, we often see nativity displays with wise men huddled together with shepherds around a manger staring at a baby Jesus. But it is almost certain that the wise men were not there on the night of Jesus' birth. They likely didn't show up until well over a year later. And we get several clues that point us to this in this text. So first, in verses 8, 9, and 10, Matthew refers to Jesus as a child and not as a baby or an infant. And then in the, the verses that follow this passage, we're told that King Herod decrees that all of the boys in Bethlehem under two years old are to be killed. And if Jesus had just recently been born when the wise men visited, then Herod wouldn't have needed to extend that massacre up to the age of two. But if the wise men weren't at Jesus's birth, why are they so closely associated with Christmas? I think the simplest answer is that this is the first thing that Matthew tells us after the birth of Jesus. And even though it may not be chronically, chronologically connected to the coming of Christ, it is thematically connected. This passage gives us a picture of what our response is supposed to be. In chapter 1, Matthew has told us all about who Jesus is. In his genealogy, he has told us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham. And he is the Messiah in the line of David. And in the announcement of Jesus' conception, we're also told that Jesus is the one who would save God's people from their sins. And that he would be Emmanuel, God himself, come to dwell with us. And then here in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, he shows us what our proper response should be to Christ's coming, and that is worship. Worship is the theme that runs all throughout this story from the beginning to the middle to the end. We see in verse 2 that the, when the wise men come to Herod, they ask him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And then in verse 8, Herod says, well, when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And then in verse 11, 
When the wise men saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and worshiped him. Jesus has come as the Christ, the the true king. Therefore, we are to worship him. And this morning, we're gonna see three things from this story. The call to worship, the hindrance to worship, and the act of worship. So first, the call to worship. And we're gonna look at two aspects of this call. Who receives it and how they receive it. So who receives this call? In verse one, we're told that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now these these wise men were magi. If you have a hard copy of your Bible, you might see that footnote, that the, the Greek word is magi. And this is where we get the word magician. In the ancient world, magi were royal counselors who were experts in astrology and the interpretation of dreams and other secret arts. And none of those things are good in Old Testament terms. In Deuteronomy 18, we're we're expressly told that God forbids divination and fortune telling. In Isaiah 47, the prophet mocks people who use stars to make predictions. Moreover, these magi are from the east, which would have been either Persia or Babylon. So they were outsiders to the nation of Israel. And they weren't simply outsiders to God's people. They were once the oppressors of God's people. So suffice it to say that these wise men were not the right kind of people. They were not the sort of people that you would expect to come looking for the king of the Jews. And yet these magi, these men who did forbidden things and who were not a part of God's people, receive this call to come and worship Jesus. And Matthew is again showing us already that Jesus has come to be a king of all people from all walks of life. He has come as the Christ who would call sinners to himself. And this means that there is nothing in our lives that can disqualify us from receiving Jesus' call. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't think that you're very deserving to be here. Maybe you look back on this week or this month or this year or on your life as a whole and you feel like you are just such a fraud pretending like you belong here in worship. Or maybe you feel this need to to clean yourself up a little bit in order for Jesus to receive your worship. Well, one of my favorite songs that we sing in RUF is the retuned hymn, Come Ye Sinners, which says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. It's not the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to call. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to call sinners to himself, that we might worship him. And so we don't have to wait until we're good enough to receive and respond to this call. But this also means that there is nothing that disqualifies other people from receiving this call as well. How often are we guilty as Christians of putting requirements in the way of receiving God's gracious call? I'm actually reading a book about this right now called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. This book centers around a controversy in the Church of Scotland in the early 1700s. But Ferguson wrote this book because 
He says, this old controversy teaches us about the dangers of legalism in every age. And it's true that Christians have always been guilty of creating standards for entry that God himself doesn't have. But there is nothing that anyone has to do in order to first receive this call to come and worship Jesus. God calls us just as we are. So that is who receives the call. But next, let's look at how they receive the call. In verse 3, they tell us that we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, for centuries, much ink has been spilled over what celestial phenomenon the Magi saw. And that might be an interesting piece of trivia, but that's not really the main point. The point is that God used stars, these things that were so significant and valued and revered by the Magi, and he used them to call the Magi to Jesus. We might say that God spoke their language. And we shouldn't be surprised that God could and should do this because all of creation is God's creation. And so all of the truth in this world is God's truth, as John Calvin once said. And so God can use anything in this world that captivates our attention and draws our hearts to use it to call us to his son. Now, the, the author C.S. Lewis understood this very well. Before he was the great Christian apologist, he was a hardened atheist, but he loved nature and music and literature. And in his spiritual autobiography, he called all of these things stabs of joy, which were actually signposts that were pointing him towards God. And then he utilized this signpost approach in his own writing. And he almost comes right out and tells us this. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there is this great lion, Aslan, who is glorious and terrifying, powerful and gentle. And in the voyage of the Don Treader, Edmund and Lucy are told by Aslan that they can no longer come back to Narnia. And Lucy says to Aslan, it, it isn't just Narnia, you know, it's you. We shan't meet you in our world. And how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are, are you there too, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little while, you may know me better there. Lewis hoped that God would use his character of Aslan to point readers to Christ so that they might come and love Jesus just as they has, had loved Aslan. Now, you may have experienced this sort of call to worship with the Chronicles of Narnia specifically or, or with other stories more gener generally. I, I recently finished uh, the, the Amazon series, The Rings of Power. And I can honestly say that I experienced many moments of worship while watching that TV show. Or I, he I heard a story one time of someone who finished the, reading the seventh Harry Potter book on a Saturday night. And then the next morning they went to church and they had the deepest experience of the Lord's Supper that they had ever had in their Christian life because they had just read that book. And if you don't know why that would be the case, I won't spoil it for you. But God can do this with stars or with stories or with music. I read a story about how people in Japan are coming to faith 
through the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Japan is an incredibly secular country. I think something less than 0.2% of the population is Christian. And so as you can imagine, inroads for the gospel are very difficult to find. But God has been using the classical music of Bach to point people to Jesus. You see, God can use anything in this world that we love to call us to worship him. And so maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Well, have you considered that the things that you love in this world might actually be pointing you not just to the existence of God, but to his son, Jesus? Maybe you are more scientifically minded. And so you have a difficult time reconciling science and faith. But what if the wonders of this universe actually point us to a creator and king of the cosmos that we were also created to worship. You know, that is what the scriptures teach us, that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the things have been made reveal to us his eternal power. Now, before moving on here, I want to clarify that this doesn't mean that you can all just go skip church and spend time in nature to worship God. Or this doesn't mean that you can just read the Chronicles of Narnia instead of reading the Bible. (laughs) No, we still need to hear the scriptures both publicly and privately in order to truly worship Jesus. We see that in this story. The Magi want to answer this call to worship, but they need the scriptures to know where to direct their worship. But the point is that God can use anything in this world to lead us to his word so that we may worship the Christ that we find there. So that's our first point, that God can use anything in the world to call anyone in the world to worship Christ. Now, if that is true, then why doesn't everyone respond? Well, that leads us to our second point, the hindrance to worship. Returning to our story, the second main character is King Herod. And in verse three, we're told that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the reason that all Jerusalem was troubled with Herod is because Herod had the unfortunate combination of power and paranoia. He had one of his wives executed because he suspected that she had been unfaithful to him, even though she was one of his 10 wives. He also had three of his sons killed because he believed that they were plotting to kill him. So if Herod wasn't happy, then ain't nobody was happy. (laughs) But why was Herod troubled by this news that a king of the Jews had been born? Well, it's because he recognized that Jesus was a threat to his own throne. If the true king of the Jews had been born, then that would displace Herod as the king of the Jews. And so, because he is troubled, he calls together all the chief priests and the scribes, and he asks them where this supposed king was supposed to be born. And the the scribes and the priests know their Bibles. They're able to pass the Bible quiz. And so they quote two Old Testament passages, Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2, that speak of the Christ being born in Bethlehem. And then in verses 7 and 8, Herod secretly summons the Magi, And he feigns interest in worshiping this newborn king as well. We know that that's not what he really wanted to do. 
Because if we were to read further in chapter two, we would see that rather than worshiping Jesus, Herod was planning on killing him. That's because Jesus jeopardized his authority as king. There's a, there's a scene that's similar to this in the first Black Panther movie. Not the most recent one, but the first one that came out back in 2018. Eric Stevens, a.k.a. Killmonger, is brought into the throne room of Wakanda. And the king of Wakanda, T'Challa, asks him what he wants. And Stevens bluntly says, I want the throne. And everyone is affronted by this demand. But Stephen says, go ahead, ask who I am. Now, the king, T'Challa, knows who he is. He knows that he has a legitimate claim to the throne, but he refuses to acknowledge that and instead commands to have him sent away. Because T'Challa knows that Stephen's jeopardizes his authority as king. But then even after Stephen reveals that he has a rightful claim to the throne and challenges T'Challa to the throne, T'Challa's mother tells him not to accept that challenge because she doesn't want her son's throne to be threatened. Well, in the same way that Eric Stevens threatened the throne of T'Challa, Jesus threatened the throne of Herod, and that is Herod's hindrance to worshiping Christ. Now, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with us? Because none of us have a political kingdom like Herod or T'Challa, but we all do want to be king and queen of our own lives, don't we? And if you need a little bit of convincing of this, just think about how you responded the last time a parent or a teacher or a boss told you to do something that you didn't want to do. Or how did you respond the last time that someone prevented you from doing something that you wanted to do? You see, the Bible tells us that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, rebelled against the kingship of God and instead placed the crown upon their own heads. And ever since then, we have followed in their footsteps. In our hearts, we have set up a kingdom of me. We all want to live by our own rules. We want to control our lives. We want to exert our will on the world around us. And frankly, the modern world doesn't help us with this. You know, one of the refrains I hear a lot on the college campus is, well, you do you. And what that means is, you know, whatever you feel to be right and good, you should do. You know, as, as long as it doesn't infringe upon anyone else's personal kingdom. And on top of that, in our prosperous society, there is a proliferation of goods and services that can be tailored and customized to our exact desires. This is part of the, the materialism that saturates this season in America. It's not just that we want things, it's that we want things that perfectly fit our personal preferences. And so if someone just gets us a pair of jeans that are the right size, but they're, they're not the right brand or the right cut or the right wash, we're still disappointed. And the fact that we can get highly customized products just reinforces this idea that the world should bow to our every whim. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that our modern culture is the problem. No, we are the problem. But what I am saying is that the world conspires with our sinful hearts to tell us that we truly are the rulers of our own lives. And as long as we believe that lie, it's going to be a hindrance to us worshiping Jesus. Because worshiping Jesus as king means that we must bow the knee to him. 
It means that we are no longer our own. It means that we can no longer live for ourselves. It requires that we give up authority over our own lives. It requires that we remove the crowns from our head and cast them down at Jesus' feet, as we read in Revelation 4 this morning. And whether or not you would consider yourself a Christian, we are all resistant to doing this, right? So why on earth would we give up the right to our throne in order to worship Jesus? Well, Jesus later tells you tells us in Matthew's gospel that this is the path to true life. He says, for whoever would save his life, that is, whoever would seek to retain ownership of it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The only way to discover true life is by renouncing our right to the throne and by worshiping Jesus as the Christ. Okay, but we keep talking about worshiping Jesus, but what does that actually look like? Well, that brings us to our third point, which is the act of worship. So after seeing Herod's response to the coming of Christ, the story turns back to the Magi. And in verse nine, it says that they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And so when they see the star, they start to follow it again. And here, it's worth pausing to reflect upon their journey thus far. These magi had left their homeland behind. They had picked up everything and traveled close to a thousand miles with a caravan of people and animals just so that they could find and worship Jesus. And then when they finally find the house where he is, what do they do? They fall down before Jesus. And then it says that they open up their treasure boxes and they offer him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, many commentators throughout history have attributed symbolic value to each of these gifts. They say that gold pointed to his royalty, incense to his divinity, and myrrh to his forthcoming death. But I'm inclined to follow the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, who says that the real significance for each of these gifts is that they are expensive. (laughs) They are costly gifts that would have been suitable for a king. So these magi brought the best that they could offer and they gave it to Jesus in worship of him. Now these magi likely were not worshiping Jesus in the truest sense of the word. They believed that Jesus was a divinely promised king but they probably didn't recognize him as divine. They thought that they were simply paying homage to a king, but Matthew knows that they are worshiping even better than they realize. And so he uses them as an example of what our worship should look like as well. And the act of worship that we see from these magi is sacrificing not just their livelihoods, but their lives and offering them up to Jesus. This reminds me of a woman named Kiki. So when I lived in Memphis, I would get breakfast every once in a while with my pastor at this restaurant called The Cupboard. And my pastor told me about a waitress that he had met there named Kiki. And Kiki was from Athens, Greece. But Kiki loved Elvis. And so one day, she decided that she was gonna move to Memphis just so that she could be near the king 
Now, mind you, this is decades after Elvis had passed away. But Kiki left home and family. She gave up her livelihood and she came to Memphis. In many ways, Kiki dedicated her life to Elvis because she worshiped him as the king. Right? That is what true worship looks like. And this is different than the way that we often talk about worship. You know, oftentimes we use the word worship to describe what happens here on Sunday mornings at church. We can use it even more narrowly to describe the portion of the service where we praise the Lord and song. And worship is certainly not less than those things, but it is far more than those things. It's more than what happens on Sunday mornings. Worship is what we do with the whole of our lives. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that is, your whole selves, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to dedicate all that we are and all that we have to Jesus. And that means that we don't have to have gold and frankincense and myrrh. No, we can take a lesson from the little drummer boy. You remember what he said, I have no gift to bring, that's fit to bring a king. So I played my drum for him. I played my best for him. All he had was himself and his drum. And so he played it for Jesus. Likewise, we worship Jesus by offering up ourselves and whatever he has given to us. And so if, if he has given you money, then we offer that back up to him. Or if he has given you skills to build things, then we build things to his glory. If he's made you able to cook, then we cook in honor of him. Or if he's given you kids, then we raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Or if he's given you a job, then you work heartily for the Lord. Or if you're retired and he's given you disposable time, then you make the best use of that time in service to Jesus. Worship, worshiping Jesus means offering our lives to him, all that we have and all that we are. Now, one final thing I want us to see from this story is the reaction of the Magi when they see the star the second time. Look with me again at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Matthew here is just piling up adverbs to tell us that they are as happy as they can be. And that is what we experience as well when we come to Jesus in worship. We experience joy, exceedingly great joy. We experience more joy than any Christmas present that perfectly fits our personal preferences could ever give us. And we experience that joy because Jesus was not born simply as a king for us to worship. No, he was born to be our servant and our suffering savior. As Jesus would later say, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. When Jesus calls us to worship him, yes, it means giving our lives to him rather than keeping the crown for ourselves. But we are giving our lives to the king who first gave his life for us. And nothing or no one else that we might ever worship will serve us like that. Nothing or no one else that we might ever worship 
will love us like that. So we can have no greater joy than worshiping this king who has so great a love for us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you sent your son Jesus into this world to be the true king who would save us and set things right. But we thank you, Lord, that he exercises his kingship by serving us. And he saves us not by exerting his power, but by laying down his life. Lord, I pray that your spirit would pour out that love into our hearts and lead us to worship your son Jesus more this holiday season. Lord, would you help us to recognize all the places where we are still trying to wear the crown? May we repent, remove our crowns, and cast it at your feet. For Lord, you are worthy of all of our worship. You are worthy of all of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.